This episode is brought to you by Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma. When it's time for an aircraft component inspection, overhaul, repair, or replacement, you need experienced technicians you can trust and friendly service you can count on. Aircraft Accessories of Oklahoma, a family-owned business since 1959, delivers just that. Our techs have real-world experience and provide sales, service, and overhaul for piston engine aircraft accessories. We also have limited turbine capabilities such as fuel pumps, starter generators, and prop governors. And we can overhaul propellers ranging from fixed pitch to turbine. Propeller pickup and delivery service is available. And one more thing, mention this podcast to receive 5% off your next sale, service, or overhaul. Visit aircraftaccessoriesofok.com. I saw an oil pressure light in my engine monitor. And I looked up my left window and there's oil everywhere. Just spewing down my wing over the flaps and all over the cowling and everything. And, you know, I'm not that high off the ground. I'm losing this engine. I'm in a turn, I'm banking on my MC and uh, I, I'm, I'm in trouble. Welcome to another edition of There I Was a podcast where we put you in the cockpit with pilots in demanding situations and we learn how they flew out of them. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Today's guest is repeat offender, Devin Miller. You may remember Devin Miller's name. He appeared on our show a couple years ago when he told us a story about flying a Piper Arrow with his family on board when he had a stuck throttle. Only about a 200 hour pilot at the time. Fast forward now and Devin's gone on to earn his commercial ticket, his instrument ticket, his single engine commercial rated, multi-engine commercial rated IFR. He's got about 450 hours total time. And today he's gonna share a story with us about flying a PA-34 Seneca 3, a Piper twin, when he lost an engine en route to Canada. Devin, welcome again to the There I Was podcast. Thanks, Richard. I think next time we talk, you should just call me and we can just go for coffee and skip the whole bad day thing. <laughs> yeah, this is generally not a good thing that you want to be here, but in, especially in your case, in both cases, and we'll get into it, rarely, you know, that happens rarely, but the airplane failed you and you knew how to uh, respond to it in both cases. I'm, I'm really curious to hear about your engine failure. I think that light twins, engine failure and light twins is one of the most demanding scenarios in all of general aviation. And as only a 450-hour pilot with a relatively new multi-engine rating, I'm just impressed with your response to that and can't wait to hear the details. Yeah, happy to, uh, well, certainly happy to be here, I guess, literally, but there's certainly things that I want to improve on in my own flying. And, you know, I guess stories like these, kind of to your point, help make us all a little bit more more prepared. They do, and I'm grateful for you spending the time to talk to us about it. I joke about you being a repeat offender, but obviously there was no offense on your part. It was simply you dealing with scenarios and being willing to share them with us. So, Devin, you were flying a pretty long cross-country. You were going from Texas, following along in flight here, heading from Golf Tango Uniform, stopping in Charlie Golf, India, Missouri, for a fuel stop, and then headed up for another fuel stop in New York, Papa Echo Oscar before eventually making your way to New Brunswick, Canada. What a great trip. What was taking you on such a long journey? Yeah, it, it is a great trip. And honestly, it's part of the reason why we we moved up into the Seneca is these long cross-country flights. Uh, we I made the same trip a few weeks before. We were going up to with my family on board that time. 
We went up there. Canada Day is, is on July 1st. So we went up late June. The kids were out of school and, and we started our, our kind of a vacation. And I had to come back for work. So I left Moncton, New Brunswick, came back into Georgetown, Texas. And this trip on this day was intended to uh, go, go pick them up, get some fishing in. And then come back to uh, Texas to start the school year for the kiddos. Yeah, sounds like a great trip. And like you said, why you upgraded from the Arrow to the Seneca. So walk us through your story. What happened? Yeah, so it was, it was a great morning, oddly enough. It was super cool and, and smooth um, leaving Texas. There was a stationary front kind of sitting over that central U.S. region. And you know, with all of the, the recent flooding in the water up there, it was only going to get worse as the day kind of went on. So my plan was to leave early in the morning out of Texas. So I got up super early and nice early morning flight left. It was dark, climbed all the way up through and landed into uh, Cape Girardeau. But in route, that weather that I was very aware of when I was watching it, the I was trying to skirt that westerly side of it. Uh, I knew that it was going to be lowering the ceilings. The METAR from but 80 miles out was still showing a thousand feet of Cape Girardeau, which felt pretty good. And then, and I was going to cut the corner of that weather system and that. And then the first part of my next flight were going to be the bad weather flights I was going to have. And then after that, it was going to be pretty smooth sailing or, or so, so I thought. Yeah, a thousand feet. I'm kind of with you. You know, a thousand feet doesn't really get your attention if you got your instrument rating standpoint, right? That's a relatively high ceiling for IFR. So that's not really intimidating, would you say? Yeah, I mean, anything lower than that, then I was going to skirt to the left. But a 1,000 feet for planning, I, I, I was comfortable with. Yeah. But I was IMC in my descent from 6,500. So, I, you know, that also, I knew where the tops were. And then shooting the approach. And, and you know, center actually asked me if I could, could I see the run? Could I see the airport? Do I have a field in sight? I said, no. I said, I'm, not, I'm still IMC. But if I get it, I, I'll take the visual. And if not, I'll, I'll shoot the RNAV. And so that's what we did. But I never got the field in sight. It was always pretty low. And got in to uh, shoot the procedure turn because I, and again, never got the field and shot the procedure turn and did the approach, but the, the METAR was, was higher. Um, when I switched over to tower on the approach from center, the tower said, hey, our, we're, we're looking closer to, you know, six, 700 feet. And then uh, I actually ended up breaking out at 500. Mm, okay. Right at that audible call out. So, so again, that gave me a good picture of the weather, right? I, I know that my ceilings are 500. The tops are about 6,500. Landed and uh, went in and got fuel. I was pretty proud of my approach, to be honest. So I, I actually took a picture when after I, I parked and shut down. I took a picture because just that little, you know, that sense of accomplishment that, that we get as instrument pilots. We don't do that every day. <laughs> it is, isn't it? I mean, as many approaches as I've flown, I've flown a lot through the years. It's still just this most satisfying feeling when you're in the clouds flying your approach. You're all on needles or glass or whatever you're flying. And then suddenly the weather starts to, you know, move away and the runway starts to appear right in front of your windscreen where it should be. And that's such a gratifying feeling. I, I agree with you. every time. It, it is. So I'm having a great day, right? I mean, I'm by myself. I got my dogs and uh, I'm going to see my family. And, and so I'm having a great day. Got fuel and, and the FBO were fantastic and uh, said bye and jump back in the plane and get ready to go again. Picked up my my clearance with Tower and started taxiing out to make my way up to New York. Everything was fine. Everything was normal. I knew the weather. I don't take these these IFR departures lightly, no matter how many times we do it. So took a glance at the ODP, made sure that I, I understood that and the climb rates and 
nice big airport and the performance in the Seneca is fantastic. So, so that was good. No issues with the ODP if ever I lost any comms. And I knew from just doing that approach a minute ago, I knew where the MSAs were yeah. and nothing really stood out. You mentioned a couple of things there just I, I want to stress. So you, you took the time to take a look at the ODP in relatively flat terrain, and yet still you took the time to look at it, which is just such a good habit and good discipline on your part to do that. And you had some SA. You knew exactly where the weather was on the approach. You knew exactly where the tops were. So I'm with you taking off, departing into a 500-foot ceiling. You know, that's you got to be on your game for that, you know. So you're, you're ready. You've got your cockpit ready. You've probably got everything laid out, and you're ready to be ahead of the airplane as you go into the weather. So... As of now, you're feeling pretty good, right? Yeah, feel, feeling pretty good. And, and I talk to myself uh, when I fly, whether I'm flying alone or if the wife's sitting up there with me. I just, that, that's how I train and I say things out loud. So I'm having a great conversation with myself. I'm briefing my departure and just, just getting ready, feel good. I got tower frequency in, I'm talking to the tower, and then I got my center frequency tuned in or, or ready to go. And yeah, felt felt good, lined up, and uh, it's time to go. Got my takeoff clearance. I use the full length of the runway every time. Taxied onto the runway. Everything's, you know, feeling good. Taxi them up, hold in position for, for a few seconds, bring my throttles up. And uh, right around 33 inches or so, 33 to 35 inches of manifold pressure, I'll let off the brakes. And, you know, we'll start down that takeoff roll and there's a lot of things that we kind of go through through the checks. I've got a great engine monitor that is invaluable, especially on, on this trip. So that's working great. And you know, manifold pressure builds up to about 39 is what I'll want as those turbos kind of kick in and fire up. And um, yeah, going down the runway, everything's in the green. Props are turning. Everything's good. Nothing out of the ordinary. You know, even in hindsight, looking back at the engine data, nothing's out of the ordinary. It feels good. Get down the runway, I get up to my 85 knots, I bring my, my nose off just to uh, start to accelerate. I have no usable runway, grab the gear handle, watch it from my airspeed, bring the gear up, and just hold the plane right there until you get over that blue line that we have for, for multi-engine birds. And as these gear doors are, are closing, I feel not a bang, it's, it's a thud. I thought, it, I thought one of the dogs in the back knocked something over. But it's a critical phase of flight. Whatever just happened, you know, we're going to deal with that when we land. And tower comes on and says, well, I lost you in the clouds. Have a safe trip. Appreciate a tops report. Uh, have a good day. And when he said day, I heard a bang. So that thud turned into a bang. You know, I, I don't even know right now talking to me if I even answered that tower controller. Um, I, I wanted to, but uh, my attention went to this bang. And almost right away... And I'm in the clouds right now, by the way. So, you know, I'm already working in the out of the panel. I'm 500 feet or so. I started a turn. Right? Instrument departures were 450 off the ground. We're, we're starting our turn. So now I'm trying to figure out what that's about. My performance is still fine. I'm still climbing. It's probably about 1,500 feet or 1,000 feet. And what's your airspeed? So you're, you mentioned you got to blue line. That's a good feeling, you know, above your single engine climb speed. So what are you accelerating to? Yeah, I'll, I'll climb out at 90, 95 okay. knots is, is where I'll, I'll hold my climb. Okay, and what's your blue line on a Seneca 3? Uh, 90 knots. S 66 is the no-go. 
So just to sort of summarize those speeds, 66 is your minimum controllable airspeed for people who may not be twin qualified. That's a really critical speed because what it means is if you get below that airspeed, you cannot control the airplane any longer with just one engine. So you must, all pilots know it's marked by a red line on your airspeed indicator. You must know that red line airspeed so that if you ever lose an engine, you stay above that red line airspeed at all at all expense. And what you really want to do is accelerate to the blue line, which is your best performance single engine climb speed. So that's what Devin's talking about is his blue line and what he's trying to accelerate to and make sure he gets at or above. Right, uh, Devin, that's kind of what's going through your mind. Absolutely. And and by the end of this flight, I think I've drilled a hole through the blue line with, with, my, with my eyes, but <laughs> we're climbing out and my engine monitor shows me graphically my egts and my cht temperatures and i and i noticed seconds it felt like you know maybe a little bit longer but it was probably seconds that i i noticed that my number two cylinder there's no temperature it, it was white meaning it it fell way below its operating limits and now i'm thinking okay there's a bang i lost a cylinder all right well there's six of them on that left side so you know we're gonna have an issue but that's okay. Let's just, you know, stay pretty focused here. And at this point, had you felt any difference in the thrust? Did you feel any yaw? Not yet. Okay. Um, I mean, honestly, I, I don't I don't think so. Okay. Um, this is all pretty fast. Yeah. So I know that I'm down one cylinder. And you're in the weather, and you're only about six, 700 feet above the ground, right? Is that about right, where you are? Six, 700 feet above the ground. And, and so I knew that I was okay from my ODP. Okay. I felt okay from that ODP, the, the departure procedure, but I knew that I wasn't at MSA and I really wanted to get to 3,500 mm. feet. And I'm thinking pretty clearly at this point still, but I knew that I was, I was going to go to work. And share with us, uh, if you would, Devin, share with us the 3,500 feet, the MSA. Explain that, why that's important in your mind right now. Yeah, so, so I told you that I had just landed there, right, and I had to shoot the instrument approach. So on those approach plates, you have all of your fixes and your altitudes and, and you know cross restrictions depending on the approach that you're doing. But there's also an MSA, which is a minimum safe altitude. And that's just a number that I always just brief say it out loud. And, and if I'm sketching around on fourth flight, I'll, I'll you know kind of either highlight it or I'll jot it down. And that's just a great reminder of, you know, you can be at that altitude and it gives you a radius and that should give you your terrain and obstacle clearance. Yeah, and so looking at the approach, it looks like within about 25 miles on that sector that you were headed, 3,500 feet. So it's a number that IFR-rated pilots like to have in the back of their mind so that when you're in a situation like Devin's in, you know, once I get above 3,500 feet, I no longer have to worry about terrain or which direction in the direction I'm headed. I'm safe from a terrain standpoint. Right. So I'm still getting power out of that left engine and, and I'm still thinking about what I'm doing and I'm looking at my heading and, and just I'm, I'm flying in the weather and, and I'm hand flying. But I know that I'm about to go to work and I'm probably going to get kind of busy. So I, I the poor tower fell. I don't know that I even answered him, but I, I, I switched frequencies and I said center and I didn't even give my full call sign. I said seven and I knew that. I mean, I know that he's waiting for me, but I just said seven, seven Sierra, eleven hundred feet standby. And I just I had this. I, uh, there was a lot going on. I'm looking at my cylinder that fell out. I had that loud bang. And that's a very unusual radio call, right? And I didn't necessarily do this on purpose, but 
I just wanted us to become a team in that moment. And, you know, he, I was going to lean on him. I was pretty sure in, in a couple seconds and either he heard it in my voice or it's just such a weird thing for him to hear on, with an aircraft departing that another aircraft called in and he told them to stand by. And right when he was done talking, I saw an oil pressure light in my engine monitor. And I looked out my left window and there's oil everywhere, just spewing down my wing over the flaps and all over the cowling and everything. And it got real right then. Mm. You know, I'm not that high off the ground. It's not just a loss of power. I'm losing this engine. I'm in a turn. I'm banking on my MC and uh, I, I'm, I'm in trouble. Yeah, I'd, I'd say. Were you yet beginning to feel any loss in power? Were you beginning to have to add in more right rudder, you know, dead foot, dead engine? So your your left foot is probably not as, as active, but your right foot beginning to be very active now, right, as the, as the difference in yaw begins to show up? So I'd like to say that I jumped into all of those things and just aced it. But, you know, the, the reality is we when we train, you know, we always talk about like the startle factor, right? Mm-hmm. Well, either maybe I misunderstood the startle factor, but it wasn't a startle factor. Like it didn't, you know, I didn't stare at the oil and was like, oh, there's oil out there. Like it wasn't a startle. I, I felt, I felt defeated. I, I, I looked at that and, and it wasn't even like a panic. It wasn't like, tight breathing here. And I just, I looked at that and said, you know, this, this is what kills pilots. Yeah. This is literally what we've been trained to know kills pilots. And, you know, who the hell am I to, you know, be any better than that guy or beat the odds in the situation. And, and it just, it's a very surreal moment. And it's not like this seven seconds of, of like, Oh, or awe. Oh, it's, it felt like three minutes of a conversation with myself, but I'm sure it wasn't that long, but it, it was just this feeling of defeat. Yeah. I, I just want to stress what you're mentioning because that is the challenge of flying light twin airplanes right there. It's engine failure on takeoff, and we'll get to it, and engine failure during approach during the critical phases of flight. That is the essence of what twin training is all about. In cruise and every other phase of flight, both engines operating fine, it's not that difficult. This is what multi-engine training is all about. And it's so critical that you have to be on your game during this phase of flight. And it's why I'm sure you must have, because it ended up successfully for you, that if you fly light twins, you chair fly this scenario over and over and over again. There's some critical things. You must maintain above red line, above your minimum controllable airspeed. You must get to your blue line and single and your climb speed to get above the ground. And then pretty soon, I think we're going to talk about how you're dealing with your engine and feathering the prop and all those things. It is incredibly demanding. And you're in that situation in IMC. So you're right. You're an extremis. Yeah, and uh, you know, you start thinking about you know the NTSB making phone calls to your family, and it's just it, it's a very very heavy. So when when in hindsight now I'm thinking back to my training, and it's like, oh, you lost an engine, oh no, and and you can't train for that emotional hurdle, right? Like we can all you know go through the drill when it's hot or when you're stressed or when you're tired, or you, you can train for those types of things, but you cannot or I could not train for, you know, my mind is, is in a very weird spot and you got to shake that off and real fast. And that's, 
you know, when they, the expression, and I'm sure we've all heard it, you know, pilots don't rise to an occasion. We should take that far more serious than at least I ever did before because, because I didn't. Yeah. I have a tweak to that. You know, I used to say you don't rise to the occasion, you fall back to your training, but I'm adjusting that Mm -hmm. a little bit. I'm beginning to think you don't fall back to your training, you fall back to your proficiency, especially when we're talking about this scenario in twin aircraft. Absolutely. You know, the conversation I was having with myself, and I'm I'm usually a pretty confident guy. I'm pretty pretty calculated and and pretty confident. So at some point, I, I remember just, Hey, let's get that guy back out here and we'll deal with, with this part later, <laughs> but let's get that guy that knows what he's doing. I was like, all right, boom, engine failure. Like we've done so many times. Right. And then I just went, I went right into the drill. I, I, I could almost hear the drill being recited. There, there's a DPE that does a, a video, Doug Rosendahl. I think he's out of Dallas yeah, here, but yeah. he did a YouTube video and I heard his voice. To uh, feather an engine, there are lots of different methods. There are people teach it different ways, but I'm pretty hard over about teaching a method called the drill. Uh, first of all, when an engine fails in a multi-engine airplane. I was like, all right, boom, engine failure, like we've done so many times, right? And I, I went, you know, mixtures, oh, they're already up. Props, they're already up. And, and I remember thinking to myself in that sarcastic, smart-ass voice that I usually use, I was like, hey, look, you're halfway there. <laughs> and then uh, I brought my throttles up. With the engine monitor and my oil coming off my left side and my right foot getting really heavy, I, I, I was pretty confident that it was going to be that left side, obviously. And then I, I did, by this time, get a hold of center and said, hey, mayday, 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 engine failure, lost oil pressure, left side, I need VMC. And that was me just, hey, I'm going to keep this thing in a straight line. You know, I need some help, though, and, and help me find some, some better weather. Yeah. I was still getting some performance out of that left side, but with watching my oil pressure decline, I knew that that, that was going to go away at some point, and I was going to have to feather and shut down. I just didn't know when I was going to you know, trade that, that thrust for drag and, and when I was going to have to shut it down, but you start kind of preparing yourself for it and, and getting ready. Yeah, so I, I am curious about that part. So you're obviously a very busy time just flying the airplane, and you're in IMC conditions, and now you're beginning to have the time, the mental time, to factor in, okay, what's this engine doing and how do I handle this engine? It wasn't critical at the time. You were able to maintain your blue line and get above that and maintain your your speed and your climb. But now, pretty soon, this engine isn't going to produce thrust anymore, right? And you're going to have to deal with that. So walk us through that. What did you do? So working my scan diligently, as you can imagine, just with the IMC alone, that oil pressure just started to drop. And I mean, again, I'm watching the oil spew out out of the left side, out of, you know, everywhere. But we're talking like moments, right? It was just a few minutes. And and I was really having a hard time controlling my, my heading. And I was trying to associate that to, am I disoriented? Or is this now dragging on me? Is that why I can't? Is that why it's so much harder than I And thought? you're still climbing at this point, Devin? I am. I'm not at my MSA. I'm not at 3,500 okay. yet. I wanted to keep that engine going until at least 3,500 or or until the point where I don't have any power out of it. But no, it's. I'm still very, I'm, I'm low here. Okay. So 
I have my my right engine at 39 inches, which is where I want it to be. You know, you'll overboost past 40, and, and I think redline on it's like 42, but you'll start getting overboost alarms at, at 40 inches. So I'm at 39. I want all the power I can get. And um, looking at my left side, I'm pretty sure I'm at the point where it's hurting me and not helping mm. me. But one takeaway that I do have, though, Richard, is that I got very disoriented. Mm, interesting. And yeah. it's not because I don't fly in the clouds. I, I, I truly do. I do cross countries and I fly in the clouds. I'm not saying that I'm invincible to flying in the clouds, but I'm saying I have some time in the clouds. I feel pretty comfortable flying IMC, but I was very disoriented. And it was surreal because I knew I was getting disoriented. Mm, mm. And I'm staring at my attitude indicator and it's showing me that I'm level. I cross-checked that with my, my heading, my heading straight. But I felt like I was so far turned on my left that I, I, I had my elbow against the side of the plane uh, rubbing. And, and I, I could just, I get the sensation of this rubbing on my elbow because I was, I was pushing on it, but I'm level trying to climb and i just it, it became very overwhelming let me ask you devin had you started a turn at all or were you still pretty much straight line off departure runway heading pretty much no it's it's i started the turn okay. um so the runway i departed to the west and and i was turning towards the east i had to do about 130 degree the flight plan was like 130 140 degree turn back to the northeast okay. so i'm in the turn so, and I know where you're going with that. And I think that that played a part right where I'm in the turn. But I, I also think what really kind of did me in there on getting disoriented was I was looking out my window at this engine. Because mm -hmm. normally when we fly in the clouds, or at least with me, I'll even put like a, like a baseball cap on and try to even limit my, my window view because I want to be just in the panel. Yeah. And I think that looking over my shoulder at this engine and then looking back at my my instruments or I scan and then looking back at this engine and you know when oil leaks over a hot engine it smokes yeah. right and that's not fun to see ever so I'm I mean I'm pretty confident that it's just smoking but I'm watching that very closely and, and I'm sure I'm not doing very slow head movements right I'm probably going pretty quick back and forth and you know when I look at my flight track there's one point where I started heading south and I was talking with the center and, um, you know, we were, we were chatting about what was going on and they're moving everybody out of, out of the way. But that whole time, just being honest, right, being a little vulnerable here with you, but that wasn't planned. That was me working through my engine failure, trying to stay on my airspeeds, trying to keep my climb going and being very disoriented in IMC conditions. And I'm, I'm trying to go west. But I kept that turn going mm. all the way around to where I turned south, and then I had to uh, had to correct it. But that's just the level of disoriented that that I was, and uh, yeah, you know that's what I wanted to share with you anyway. Yeah, I could see that because you're you know you've got the the full thrust coming out of the right engine, so you know you've, you're definitely yawing to the left. Um, and that's pushing you you know towards the south. And now you're looking out the left side. And you're in this kind of constant slight bank, and that can induce orientation, as can head movements when you're in the clouds. So you do have a lot of factors playing against you that would induce disorientation. And the great thing is you recognize, so a lot of, a lot of your training is coming at play here. You recognize it, and you f go back to focusing on your ADI, because that's the only way out of it. Yeah. 
in my track when you see and you see it and it points north that's when now i have an engine feathered and and i break out i feathered right around that that msa i remember kind of feeling a sense of relief there at that minimum safe 3500 feet uh, msl so we feathered and we were able to climb up you know three four five hundred feet a minute up to vmc and, and the poor guy from center I, I'm telling them I need visual conditions and you know, there's not a lot of traffic. I mean, it's not a good weather day. There's no VFR guys out there. He had a Southwest or an American airlines guy at 30,000 feet. And I mean, the poor fellow even called to him to see, you know, can you see any weather below you and, and whatnot? But it got to the point where he, I, I could hear the desperation in his voice and he could probably hear the desperation in mine. I told him I need visual conditions. I need to continue my climb to visual conditions and you know lower the better, but I need an airport that is better than 500 feet. I, I had no intentions of turning back. Yeah. So somewhere in here, in the climb, once you've got the airplane under control, you've fought through some uh, disorientation, but you're winning that battle, even though you probably don't feel like it's over yet. It's still a battle you're fighting. And somewhere in there, you take care of your engine. Did you feather your prop, shut down your engine, or... Talk to us about, did you feel better performance once you did that? Yeah, um, I feathered it coming out of that, that MSA. And, you know, my oil pressure was, was you know, now you know, sub five. So she's basically done. Uh, she, did, she gave me all she was going to give me. So, uh, yeah, pulled the feather back. And, you know, when, when you feather an engine, even if it's just, you know, running a little bit, that, that will kill it. So that, so that killed it the rest of the way. Props feathered perfectly. Very relieved to see those slice the air. Killed the mixture. And I'm doing this this part. You know, I have my head back a little bit. I'm still, you know, my vision's still not 180 degrees. I'm still, you know, drilling holes in my in my blue line and and, and my instruments. But very methodically feathered the prop. Left prop. Left prop. Left lever. Left prop. Left. Okay. Yeah. Left. Yeah. And, you know, one thing that I thought about was, you know, the mixture knob, the prop knob and the, uh, the lever for the throttle, you know, we touch those every flight, right? And, you know, hey, the one on the left is the left, the one on the left is the left. But, but you know, what you don't touch every flight is, is your fuel. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so because there's smoke out of my wing, I want to cut the fuel off. So not just the mixture, but I mean, like cut the fuel. And uh, I probably yelled left. <laughs> And like, I knew that it was the one on the left <laughs> and it's just a, it's just a tab that you pull back to cut it off and it says left and it's on the left side and the one for the right's on the right side. But I stared at that. It, it felt like a minute. It was probably, again, a blink of an eye, but I was like, this is the left one, right? Cause we don't, that's one that we don't do yeah. every time. We don't actually go down and cut the yeah. pool. That's interesting. I want to stress that for our listeners, too, that may not fly twins, and you may think it's sort of common sense, but we have lost airplanes before and lost pilots where they shut down the wrong engine because, you know, you've got a lot going on, you're under a lot of stress in your mind, and you can make mistakes, misidentify the engine. We've also lost pilots before in twins where they misapply the rudder. They apply the wrong rudder. When you lose an engine, it's important that you get your foot into the rudder on the operating engine side to to eliminate that excessive yaw. And if you do that the wrong way, you can, depending on your airspeed, you can put the airplane out of control or cause yourself some serious control problems. So 
this whole verif- identify and verify step is just critical, and it's worth the time that you're talking about, Devin, where you just verify, verify, identify, verify, and then you take the action. Yeah, and all these little steps, Richard, I kept, you know, because uh, I listened to your podcast, and I, I kept hearing on the podcast, there's kind of a couple themes, right, that, that came to mind. It was like, you know, wind your watch. Like, we're going to do this slowly. We're going to do this deliberately, even though you're in complete helmet fire. Yeah. Like, sheer just workload. And it's, it's like, no, we're going to say it out loud. We're going to talk like this in this voice and just try to keep everything methodical and deliberate. So yeah, winded my watch and killed the fuel. And by the time I got through feathering and getting through all of this and cut the fuel, it wasn't very much longer that I broke out to my 6,000 or 6,500 foot where I got above the clouds. And and now I had visual reference and could get a better grasp of of what I was dealing with. Mm, That had to be such a relief when you broke out and now you're in visual conditions. It absolutely yeah, was. Yeah, I, I can just, I, I feel that relief myself sitting here, hearing <laughs> you tell this story. Hey listeners, do you love aviation? Did you know that general aviation contributes billions to the U.S. economy every year and is a vital pipeline for military and commercial pilot force? AOPA works to ensure the vitality of the aviation industry and supports our freedom to fly. Join us and become a member now at AOPA.org you'll become part of a worldwide community of aviation enthusiasts. We'd love to have you. Find out more at AOPA.org. Okay, so now you know you're out of extremis for the time being. You've handled a very delicate situation. You've got your engine shut down. There appears to be no other problems. You're in clear airspace. You're talking to the controller. You've got a chance to take a breath but you still got instrument conditions underneath you and you got to bring this single engine airplane down. A single engine approach is not the easiest thing in the world to do. So what'd you decide to do? Yeah, so now I'm saving my good engine. So I I brought her back. I debated about the cow flaps and I've actually asked about four different people and I've got five and a half different answers, but, uh, I think I know what I would do again, but you know, cow flaps and crews, what do you want to do here? And knowing that my engine is, is, you know, firing for me, I left the cow flaps open and I didn't touch the cow flaps on the left side. Cause I was like, well, what if I, if I cut the airflow, then, you know, is there any fire issues? And I was like, you know what? It's not on fire right now. We're going to leave them alone. <laughs> so I left the left side right where they were. And I left the right side open too. try to keep that engine mm-hmm. cool. But but Memphis Center, who I was talking to, I was getting either out of their airspace or they didn't have information that was going to help me. So they they asked me, which was awesome, if I could take a frequency change, and I said I could. So they switched me over, do a frequency change, and this part was a little bit odd, to be honest. I, I you know I'm used to flying in you know around Texas where it's just approach controllers and then centers and, and whatnot. But so I, I had done, you know called on as you know emergency aircraft seven seven Sierra single engine looking for the highest ceiling airport and you know, we had to go to work here so i'm not ready to kind of go down to my ipad and start looking through four flight i'm still kind of helmet fire-esque even though i'm in i'm visual now i'm still really aware of what's kind of going on and these guys are going to be part of my team and they're going to help me out they initially found an airport to my it was like northwest 
But when I was looking out my window, that looked a lot more weathery or cloudy than I wanted. And to my northeast, it felt like it was more kind of scattered versus like a solid overcast to the west. So I asked, actually, I asked them, I said, wait a minute, is that is that not towered? And, you know, we're all, trying, we, we can fly into either or, but I really didn't want to let go of that voice on the radio and switch over to a, to a Unicom to go shoot an approach down to, you know, a thousand feet. Right by myself and you know not know if there's any other aircraft there that are just not talking or i mean you just, you just don't know and i'm telling myself that a go around is unable even though i just climbed on a single engine i'm landing this plane on on my next approach i i want to stack these odds in my favor so uh, working with center we found this airport which was advertising a thousand it had a tower which was awesome and that airport's carbondale carbondale yeah okay Great. Yeah. So I get a, I get a heading and, uh, you know, I'm, I'm still a little rattled, I guess. And so now I'm flying north, kind of going to parallel it. And I'm pulling up the RNAV approach. They offered the ILS, but I was like, you know, that, you know the RNAV is just one less button because I'm going to be in the clouds again. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I can just hit uh, Garmin. I can just go procedure, select approach, RNAV, enter, rather than pulling up and dialing in frequencies and leaving my CDI for, for VLOG. So it was, just, it was just less work. Yeah. So that all felt pretty good, and I started to get a little bit comfortable with what we were going to do. And I'm back down into the clouds, though, as I get ready for this approach, which is fine. I'm single engine. We're in the clouds. I mean, it's flying straight. I got the left wings up, you know, raise the dead, so to speak, and I got the ball pretty well split. So it's all going along. And then, you know, this is where everybody's trying to do the right thing and, and help out. But, you know, my frequency that I'm on is starting to get busy. And I was kind of expecting to be able to chit chat with our controller here, just back and forth one on one and not have to try to sneak it, you know, words in, but the frequency got busy. So I, I keyed up and said, Hey, emergency aircraft, seven seven Sierra, single engine approach. I need an intercept vector for one eight left. Cause I, I mean, I, I was really not expecting to do a procedure turn or, or anything like that. I was really expecting vectors to final. Yeah. And, you know, going into uh, Cape Girardeau, though, I did do the turn and, you know, I just kind of figured that, you know, center this not an approach control, they'll just clear you for the approach and that's just the way it works. But in this instance, I was pretty sure that I was going to get vectors to final. And then I, I knew that we were going to have a bit of a challenge when I said I need an intercept vector because I was getting pretty close and I didn't want to have to do anything fast at this point. Yeah. And, and I said, I need an intercept vector. And, and the poor fellow said, Roger. And I said, oh, that's, that's not the answer. I Like, is he coming back with that? Anyway, so I, I made another radio call, and I'm IMC again, and I got tower frequency all kind of tuned in, and, and I'm ready to get switched over. But he, he was handling a few other planes at the same time, and I just wasn't getting kind of what I needed, or he didn't understand what I needed. And, and I think maybe looking back, saying the words, I need vectors to final, or I need an intercept vector, they don't do a lot of approaches if they're center controllers and that's not, maybe, maybe that's where I could have been a little bit more clear, but I ended up, I think this was my third try. I kind of cleared myself for the approach. I said, you know, center seven, seven, seven Sierra, I'm going to fly a heading of one six zero, which should be an intercept vector for the final of one eight left RNAV approach. And then, I think I said I'll, I'll cross whatever the fix was at or above 2,200. And I, I just needed everybody around me to know I'm doing this approach 
I think I said, I'm unable to do a go around. We need to get this right the first time. And then he switched me to tower. So it was kind of an odd moment. I wasn't going to get kind of bogged down on it. I, I was doing this approach. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was going and, you know, I, I think back of just what can I do better next time? Right. Obviously I didn't like my, my heading control on that departure and that IMC climb. And this moment I really stuck to like, what could I have said differently? Cause it was not a warm, fuzzy feeling shooting this approach. Yeah. It sounds like getting the priority or the treatment that you would expect. Like they don't realize how difficult this situation is for you. Almost as if maybe they didn't understand you were an emergency almost, but yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm with you. Maybe reinforcing emergency aircraft. I need vectors to final. And I, you know, I like the way it seems like you reached back and kept bringing that uh, that confident guy out again to say, hey, man, step in here and, you know, let's <laughs> let's get on top of this situation, right? Let's make it ours. Let's take the initiative. We own this situation. And you did that so well and on takeoff and on here, it seems like you did the same thing. Yeah, and, and I was glad that guy was, you know, flying, flying and not, not the first guy, but... <laughs> <laughs> so uh, I'm shooting this approach and, uh, you know, I had a couple other things that kind of came to mind. And I mean, obviously single engine, I want my airspeed and I want my altitude. Mm-hmm. Just those are things, if you give them up, you might not be able to get them back. So I want altitude and I want my airspeed, but I'm also in the clouds and I'd really like to not be in the clouds. So I also want to descend. So I want my cake and I want to eat it too, so to speak. So I, I was flying this and I was, I was almost stepping down. So I was looking at my glide slope, came alive, intercepted on my self-appointed 45 degree. It, it all kind of worked out. And I, I was committed that this is going to be my best approach. Like this was going to be like, we are going to nail this one. And you're hand flying this, right? This is, yeah. this is a hand flying approach. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's mm-hmm. all. So the whole thing is, is hand flying and I'm coming down this glide slope. I want to be one dot high and I want to be about 10 knots fast minus zero, right? So plus 10 minus zero. And I want to be a dot high. It was my plan, but I dipped though. I, I would kind of dip to see, can I see yet? I would dip down almost like a localized, very subtle though. Like we're talking like a hundred feet. I would dip down and, and level. And if I couldn't see it, mm-hmm. I'd wait till that dot would come back up and, and I'd dive down and, and see if I could you know, see it. So I was doing these hundred foot kind of descents. And finally I saw the ground. I couldn't see forward, but I saw the ground and I felt, I felt better right there. And then, uh, once I saw the runway, I said, perfect. But my, what I thought was a great plan of being high and, and a little fast was like, oh, well, now you're high and fast, moron. Like, here we go. We got to figure this out. Uh, nice long runway, though. So 6,500 feet, if I, if I recall. And Tower said, I got you in sight, you know, S-turns if you, if you need them. So I wasn't that, that high. But I, I did take probably about two S-turns and touched down right at about 95, 95 knots. I was over the numbers. And uh decelerated from there and you know one thing that we don't do in training or at least i didn't do in training and it's something that i've had you know i've looked up since i guess but you know i've got a lot of rudder in yeah i mean throttles to idle but for landing but i was like you know i got that rudder trim in there right now and i got my foot on the pedal i got to take that out before i put my nose down Mm -hmm. i don't want to go through all of this just to scoot off the runway into a ditch so just those last little checklist items that are thinking it through. They're non-checklist items, but just, hey, you've got a lot of rudder in right now. Don't scoot off the runway when you touch down. So right in ground effect, I took that rudder trim out and kind of neutralized those. But again, the throttles are, are way back at this point. So 
there was not a lot of yard touchdown. So in hindsight, Devin, I'm curious, what do you feel about your strategy to stay high and fast and, you know, do the dips coming down as opposed to just flying a nice stable approach? What, In hindsight, what's your view of that? So I, I still liked it. I mean, if, if you know, when I look at my glide path, it was pretty flat. Pretty stable. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty, pretty stable. Uh, I was in a 450 to 500 feet per minute descent. Mm-hmm. But it was like these little, you know, I'd see a little pocket and I, you know, a ball high and I'd put the nose down and I never, I would never go below the glide slope, but I would stay a ball high and then try to catch the glide slope if you know it, I still don't have it. And then I'd go back for a ball high and then I'd go down just to try to see if I could get a little bit earlier view of the ground. But I mean, I, I liked it. It kind of worked for me. It felt right in the moment and, and it gave me, it gave me that, that little bit of, Hey, you're going to be, you're going to be just fine. And, yeah. and I broke out, it was 900 or a thousand feet, which I just did a 500. So 900 feels pretty good. Yeah, nice. How about your gear and your flaps? When did you, did you change anything about when you configured versus a normal two engine approach? No, I, I tried to keep it as familiar and routine as I could. So mm-hmm. right at the, right at the fix, I, I threw the gear down. And I mean, the only thing that was different was I was maybe five knots slower on, you know, I'd like to, you know, if I'm doing it at 110 to get established and then fly it at, at hundred knots, I was probably a hundred knots kind of that whole time. And then right at the fix, dropped my gear and, and then played with flaps because I still had power. It wasn't like a, it wasn't don't do it until the end, until the runway's made. Yeah. I still had power, and, and again, I was high, and I was fast, and I was keeping some airspeed, so that all felt okay. Yeah, that's so critical to keep things as standard as you can, fly a good approach, because what you really don't want to do is get distracted or do something different. You know, we used to say when you get in a difficult situation, don't do anything dumb, different, or dangerous, you know, and so try to keep it standard, and what you don't want to do is get yourself below glide slope and slow. You don't want to get yourself in a situation where you have to use a lot of power on that good engine. You want to cut a nice, steady sort of glide slope with reduced power coming down. And that's what's going through your mind, right? That's what you're trying to protect. Exactly. And even just going back to what I was saying about thinking that I'm going to kind of bop down and and figure this out, I did that till about 2,200 feet MSL and then you kind of start to break out or at least see the ground. And then I, you know, you level off, but you're on the glide slope. You're, you're right there. I'm talking about like 50 yeah. to hundred feet kind of dumping down. It's not nothing drastic. Cause again, you just want to keep it as standard as you possibly can. Yeah. Which, you know, carry to be slightly on the high side of that glide slope, carry a little bit extra speed. I mean, I could see that in the back of your mind carrying that now, the thing I want to talk to you about more and make sure our listeners understand is I usually will coach people when we're flying IFR, they're new to IFR, be careful not to transition out of your instruments too early. So a lot of times you'll come in and there's broken or a sketchy ceiling or ragged bottoms or something, and as soon as people can see out, they'll transition fully outside. But you're not doing that. You're dipping to take a glance to see but you're not fully coming outside yet because you know you're still in the cloud. So your primary reference is still those instruments, right? Yeah, and that's what I mean by dipping. Like I'm, I'm the guy that puts a baseball cap over his eyes. I don't want to see anything out there. So I'm flying that purely on my panel. 
also still looking at my engine monitor on my good side, <laughs> but just I'm, I'm working my scan, my, my holistic scan. Yeah. And when I do look up, if I can cheat that 50 feet, never, never below the glide slope, but you know, again, I'm one dot high on purpose, but if I can get down, because now I'm going to look up and I look up and it's all white and I can't see anything. I go right back to the panel and I'm honestly a little bit nervous about getting disoriented again because my airspeed's changing. I, I'm, I'm now descending mm -hmm. and, and I don't really know why my body was so disoriented. And, and so I'm a little bit nervous yeah. to be, you know, again, vulnerable here with you. I, I'm, my confidence is a little shaky. I don't want to get disoriented in my descent. Mm -hmm. So I go down, I level off my plane, I see the AI shows I'm level, and then I look out. And if I couldn't see the ground, I, I went back to the glide slope and, and caught it again. And then, you know, I did these little steps because I was nervous to look out and get it oriented. Yeah. Wow, that must have been a really good feeling when you broke out below, saw the airport below you, and then when you landed finally landed and you come to a stop it, it it was it was surreal it hit me turning off the taxiway it hit me like a filing cabinet was thrown from a from an overpass it really really hit me again like the, the first devon came back out and when i was on the taxiway like wow this is what this was not good this is uh you know you beat the odds kid like let's not do that anymore <laughs> but it felt really great. I didn't, I wasn't proud of that approach. I didn't take a picture of that. I was a little distracted, I guess, but anytime you do an instrument approach, I guess it, it's always a good feeling. Anytime you do an instrument approach, single engine with a real engine failure and IMC conditions and you break out and land safely, I'd be damn proud of that approach. So I want to ask you how much more challenging would it have been and what would your aircraft performance have been like if you would have been closer to max gross weight, had your family on board or more luggage or whatever. It seems like it was an advantage that you were relatively, I know you're full of fuel, but relatively lightweight being by yourself. Yeah, 100, uh, 120 gallons of fuel, but just me. And, you know, Richard, we, we fly this plane at max gross weight. Mm -hmm. And, you know, looking back, I had a few things in my corner. As much that has gone wrong, there's a good friend of mine. He's another Seneca driver, a guy named Jason. He's down here in Texas and just a great, great guy all around. And I was kind of chatting with him and this was his observation. I didn't even process it until he said it. So this for me is hindsight. But he said, for all that you had going wrong, you also had a lot going right. And from the guy that just saw oil spewing down his plane, I'm like, what did I have going right for me? Like, what are you talking about? And because uh, we fly a lot of the same missions. So we fly heavy, we fly far, and, and we fly high. And he said, you know, you, your family wasn't on board. So that's weight and, and kind of a mental, yeah. you know, relief. I, I, I agree with that. Not just the weight, it's the mental stress that that would induce having your family. I, I agree with that. Yeah, and it was early in the morning, so it wasn't the 105 Texas heat. Yep, yep. So density altitude was in my favor. My weight was in my favor. Okay. So I, I fully admit I had things going right for me, but you know what I love about the Seneca is one, its performance. 220 horses on on the wings, but they're turbocharged as well. But a big selling feature for me, and why I wanted very specifically a Seneca is my right engine. So the whole critical engine thing with P factor, with, you know, the left engine failed, which is, you know, your critical engine and most like twins or most twins. 
But my engine on my right wing, it counter rotates. So the rotate that downward moment of the prop, the one that takes the bigger bite of air, is actually closer to the fuselage than on the outboard side of the wing. And I think what I went through in the normal rotating prop would have been much more drastic. So I really, as much as I hated that plane in that moment, I also loved yeah. it. And uh, I owe a lot to that getting us back down. Yeah. There are a couple other things aside from the impact of the gross weight and not having your family on board, which is in your favor. It was early in the morning. I, I love the fact that you were going through this, you're hit by it, and your first reaction is you're like, yeah, no, this is bad. And then you're like, wait a second. Where's that confident, maybe a little bit arrogant guy? Bring him in here, right? <laughs> Sit him in the yeah, seat. 100%. And you reach back and you grab that guy and just take control of this situation. That seemed so critical. Yeah, and that that was my kind of learning. You know, we, you sit down for dinner later on and you just, you relive these moments, right? Like this is, I don't know how you train for that. And I'll never hear the word startle factor the same. Because to me, startle factor was like, Somebody jumps out from the side of the corner and and spooks you, and you're like, oh, and then you pause for three seconds, and then off you go. Um, this was defeat. This was I've failed. This is you know your family's going to get a phone call level, and you fall back to your proficiency because you're you become just a monkey at that point. You're just going to do whatever your body does, and you're not thinking critically. You're just it's a very huge hurt, at least for me anyway. Um, that is now what I consider startle factor. And, and I'll never kind of brush that off. Like I used to maybe think, well, startle factor is do whatever you're going to do, but add seven seconds or whatever. It's not that. It, it's a mental hurdle that you got to pull yourself out of this, this resignation attitude or this defeat feeling. And you got to fight that demon or like i don't even i'm not a very sentimental guy but man you have to make that fight real hard and uh and that's that was i'll never think of startle factor the same yeah and i've never quite it, heard it described that way but i like it. it it makes sense it's more it's more comprehensive about all the different things not just the technical startle of what's going on it's the emotional reaction to it and then getting control of that the other piece that i liked is we were always taught, you know, maintain aircraft control. If it's something, if you have any kind of problem, maintain aircraft control, analyze the problem, and take proper action. And so in your case, this happens, you're an IMC, you're at low altitude, you're maintaining aircraft control, and the whole analyze the situation, you're kind of doing that in stages as it makes sense to. First, you're just maintaining aircraft control. We talked about the speeds, making sure you get and stay above red line, men controllable airspeed, and then accelerating to that blue line, your single engine climb speed. And those were foremost in your mind, and they should have been. And you didn't need to take some of the other actions like identifying the engine, feathering the prop, all that stuff that could have been a distraction at the time. In some scenarios, you may need to do that faster. If you'd have been heavier weight, if it had been higher density altitude, you may not have had that climb or been able to have that acceleration. But in your case, you're reading the situation, and you've got time to work those problems as you get to them. And I just love how you prioritize that to make sure you are maintaining aircraft control. Then you can analyze the situation, and now you're starting to take the proper action in terms of dealing with your engine and coming up with an alternate plan. 
Yeah, wander watch, right? And that and that's why like the work that you do and even watching these YouTube videos, just being I don't fly 121. I'm not, I don't fly every day. I don't fly every week. So these types of things keep it fresh and you know, I remember listening to I think you had a Navajo pilot on your on your show a while back and he was talking about intermittent thrust or the, he didn't cage out his engine cuz well, it was still kind of working and you know, I was in my climb out. I was like, "Okay, don't be that guy." Um, not in a bad way. I'm just I'm benefiting from him sharing his story, and I'm I'm applying that to me. And what I took away from from his podcast was normal is a single engine approach. You've trained for a single engine approach. You've not trained for an engine that's making partial power intermittently up and down. And you know his regret or his learning was to you know at the right time feather it. So I winded my watch. I waited for that right moment, and you know I didn't hesitate to feather it. And part of that is just, you know, learning from others or at least putting myself in somebody else's situation, whether it's a YouTube video or just a pilot discussion at the airport and thinking, never mind what you did, but what would I have done? And then just kind of thinking it through. And that's why these things I, I think are really helpful for us GA guys that don't get to do it every day. I think you're right. It's so valuable to listen to it and put yourself in the cockpit and think, what would I have done? And am I prepared for it? You know, am I prepared to deal with what just happened to uh, this pilot? And you're right. John shares in his podcast how he left the engine running and that ended up being a distraction and he landed gear up and he kind of attributed that to he did something outside his training. He just should have shut the engine down. To your point, he's trained. He was trained to do that. So, well, really good stuff. Devin, is there anything else that we need to chat about that we haven't brought up that's a good lesson learned? No, I mean, the one thing that if I had a message for somebody that was going to go fly like twins and not to make it you know, overly dramatic or deep, but I mean it, train like your life depends on it. Train those IFR departures. I mean, we've all had foggles. We, we all know that you can see sometimes from the foggles. And I mean, you're, you're literally just cheating yourself. Train like your life depends on it. Train often. Don't just get your ticket and off you go. You truly do rise to that proficiency and Man, those IFR, IMC departures, engine failure drills, train them. Train them like your life depends on it because hopefully never it is, but you may get that call one day that it does It does rely on it. Well, Devin, so glad it worked out well for you. Hope you get your airplane uh, fixed quickly and um, look forward to seeing you around the patch sometime. Next time, let's just do it over coffee, though. We don't need to uh, relive these moments. <laughs> yeah. Okay, I, I agree. Uh, thanks so much for being willing to share your story with us. Of course, thanks for all you guys do. Well, that is one of the most demanding scenarios we can face in general aviation. Light twin aircraft, engine failure shortly after takeoff, Andes and IMC conditions. Devin did a fantastic job handling the scenario. And I like how he goes back and thinks of he could have tweaked it here and could have tweaked it there to optimize his performance. But overall, handle a situation like that and bring the aircraft back safely, that's a fantastic job. And so we congratulate him. Relatively low-time pilot, only 450 total hours and not that many hours flying twins, and has uh, that demanding scenario and handled it so well. We're glad he did. Thanks again for joining us on this edition of There I Was, alongside our producer, David O'Leary. I'm your host, Richard McSpadden. Until next time, fly safe. Hey, listeners, if you like these podcasts and you'd like to help us continue providing them, please consider a donation to help our efforts. 
Go to aopafoundation.org slash donate. That's aopafoundation, all one word, dot org slash donate. And thanks for your support. There I Was is produced by the AOPA Air Safety Institute. If you'd like to hear other episodes, submit comments, or submit your own story to potentially be featured on the show, please visit airsafetyinstitute.org slash there I was. Thanks for listening.